you have a Bible or a device with a Bible app on it and you'd like to follow along, which we'd highly recommend, you can navigate over to Exodus chapter 26. You probably wouldn't recognize Frank Gehry if he was walking down the street, but you'll always notice his buildings if you pass them by. He's an architect like no other whose works often look as though they've been made by some sort of material that doesn't have to obey the laws of physics. It's really remarkable. Uh, Here in California, you could go down to Los Angeles and you may have driven by the Walt Disney Concert Hall or the Loyola Law School building there near to home, as it were. Or maybe you've seen a picture, picture of the crumpled paper bag building at the Sydney University of Technology in Australia. Does anybody happen to have seen the crumpled paper bag building? It looks like a crumpled paper bag, and yet it's a uh, actual physical structure that you can go inside and work in and things. They are really spectacular buildings and facilities to look at. After God led Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he asked them to build a tabernacle. And this tent wouldn't seem like much from the outside. It definitely wasn't a Frank Gehry, uh, but within it was like nothing else on earth. Not only in the way that it was constructed and decorated, but it housed the Shekinah glory of the true and living God. And here's what God said to Moses in Exodus 25. This is verse 8 of Exodus 25. God said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. After God liberated the people of Israel from Egypt. He didn't just set them free to go and do whatever they wanted and just, hey, just now you're free. I'm turning you loose. Instead, I'm going to release you from your bonds and then I'm going to place you in my own boundaries. And it was uh, boundaries of love and boundaries of grace. But he said, hey, I'm going to gather you together. We're going to have a new system. I'm going to relate to you uh, through a what we call the Levitical Code or the Mosaic Law. And the heart of that would be the sanctuary, the tabernacle, this tent that they would construct. And he said that I may dwell among them. God's desire was to be in the midst of his people in a real and meaningful way, which has always been his desire, right? Right from the beginning, as we look at the pages of Scripture, we see that God in the Garden of Eden, wanted to just dwell in the midst of his creation, in the midst of his people, Adam and Eve. It says that he would come and walk with them in the garden in the cool of the day, uh, being in their midst and dwelling among them. And we know that that desire of God continues till today. In fact, tonight we're going to enjoy communion, which is a reminder that the Lord's desire is for us. Not only a reminder that he died on the cross for our sins and that uh, he has a new covenant for us, but that he's coming back for us so that he can be with us once again. In fact, we remember that Jesus was called Emmanuel, God with us. And talking about Jesus, John wrote this in chapter one of his gospel, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word dwelt there literally means God tabernacled with us. In fact, depending on your translation, it might actually say that in your verse, that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And so uh, he took up residence among the people of the earth. This has always been God's 
desire throughout the scriptures, uh, and we see a great example of it here in Exodus 26. And so when we see the tabernacle of the Old Testament, it's not only a reminder of God's desire to be with his people, but it prefigures for us the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Christ, these elements and these uh, uh, different areas and the, the different situations of the tabernacle speak to us of who Jesus would be and what he would do. Hebrews explains that to us. Now, of course, now on this side of the cross, we know that the Levitical system is no longer in place. I could tell because none of you brought a ram or a lamb to church tonight, which is great because I like animals and don't really want to slaughter a bunch of animals tonight. But the veil was torn from top to bottom at the crucifixion of Jesus, and it was a powerful symbol from heaven saying, hey, the Levitical system is now done with. And Stephen and Paul both declared in the book of Acts as they preached that God no longer dwells in temples made with hands. Instead, the church has become the house of the Lord, and our hearts are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And what God does is take our lives and conform us into the image of his son, meaning that he is changing each of us as his people to be a likeness or a representation of Christ to the world around us. And so to that end, these elements of the Old Testament tabernacle can not only give us thoughts to think about Jesus, who he is and what he would do and the offices that he would hold, but also there are insights here into our own spiritual lives and the character of Christianity as the Lord continues to build up his house, build up his temple in and through his people, which include you and me. And so in Exodus 26, there is a lot of information. But tonight, I wanna aim our attention at two particular features of this tent, the skin and the strength. First, let's look at the skin of this tent that Israel would construct. We're gonna begin in Exodus 26, verse one, and the Lord speaking to Moses says, moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of fine woven linen and blue, purple, and scarlet thread. With artistic designs of cherubim, you shall weave them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the width of each curtain, four cubits. And every one of the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain, on the selvage of one set. And likewise, you shall do on the outer edge of the other curtain on the second set. Fifty loops you shall make in the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is on the end of the second set. That the loops may be clasped together, and you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains together with the clasps so that it may be one tabernacle. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair to be a tent over the tabernacle. You shall make 11 curtains. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits and the width of each curtain four cubits. And the 11 curtains shall all have the same measurements. And you shall couple five curtains by themselves, six curtains by themselves, and you shall double over the sixth curtain at the forefront of the tent. And you shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is on the outermost in one set and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain on the second set. And you shall make 50 bronze clasps and put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be one. The remnant that remains of the curtains of the tent on the half curtain that remains shall hang over the back of the tabernacle 
and a cubit on one side and a cubit on the other side of what remains of the length of the curtains of the tent shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and on that side to cover it. You shall also make a covering of ram skins dyed red for the tent and a covering of badger skins above that. Okay, so a lot of information, right? We tried to, I tried to emphasize a couple of things that I want us to hone in on. I don't know about you, but sometimes all the cubits and the clasps are kind of hard for me to visualize, and it's helpful to kind of have some sort of picture in our mind. And so when all was said and done, the tabernacle tent was really relatively small in comparison to, say, the kind of churches um, that are built today or even the church that we're in right now. In fact, it was about the same length as this room that we're in, but it was only half as wide. That's the tabernacle. Um, And sometimes we think about, well, the children of Israel, we think there's maybe upwards of two million people coming out of Egypt through the wilderness, and so the tabernacle tent must have been this enormous thing. No, it was just about half the size of this fellowship hall, width-wise, and about as long. And the roof was flat, not vaulted like this one, at about 15 feet high. Now, out of this first section... We want to focus on the curtains that covered the top and the sides of the tabernacle, sort of acting as the skin of this tent. There were several layers, one of linen that was weaved together, one of goat's hair, one of ram skins dyed red, and one of badger skins on top of them all. Now, fun fact, again, depending on your translation, that word for badger, it's a little bit tricky for linguists. It may actually mean seal skin or dolphin skin, or terribly even manatee skin, which would be terribly sad for me. The manatee is my favorite of all the animals. But here are two thoughts for us to consider about the skin of this tent. First, as we look at these curtains, we see that it was a very consistent covering. I mean, this thing was wrapped up. It was sealed, it was wrapped, it was layered, it was consistent. The whole top, all the sides, sewn together, overlapped, clasped with one another, thick and heavy. And as we look at those different layers, we can see there was a layer for the hot sun, a layer to keep water out, a layer for beauty inside. And this tabernacle would be warm in cold weather and would also provide a cool escape from the desert heat. And that consistent curtain reminds us that Christ is a consistent and a comprehensive Savior. Our Messiah is a Messiah who doesn't leak, right? I mean, it's not like he can get us almost all the way there or he's in some sort of, you know, rickety old ship that he's going to take us to heaven in. No, our Messiah doesn't leak. He is a consistent and a comprehensive Savior. You know, I was thinking about this, and of course, It's impossible to escape the election cycle we find ourselves in, and you'll hear people evaluating a presidential candidate, maybe in conversation or on the news or something, and sometimes you'll hear something like uh, a comparison of, of this individual candidate's strength versus their weaknesses, and you'll hear things like, you know, well, his economic credentials are great, but he's got no foreign policy experience, and so you're kind of weighing that out, and which candidate makes the most sense for the problems and the issues that, I, that are important to me, and uh, there is no perfect candidate, and there's nobody who has all of the bases covered, and so we have to pick and choose the kind of leadership that we think is most important for the right now. Well, that's not the kind of savior we find in Jesus. Like the covering of this tent, he's got every section, every corner, every joint, every layer covered. His rule and his ways are applicable for every area of our lives. 
And, you know, and if we're thinking of ourselves as being built up as a tabernacle, the Lord can cover all of it. He can cover every side. He can cover for every kind of weather. He can cover every nook and cranny. He can deal with whatever the wilderness and the people around us throw at us because he's a comprehensive savior. He is a consistent savior. He is perfect in all of his Ways And so his rule and his ways are applicable for every area of our lives. And that means that there's nothing in our lives that God's word cannot inform and his spirit cannot empower. There's nothing. No problem, no challenge, no uh, goal that he's put before us. There's nothing that we need to be able to accomplish that God cannot instruct us in and empower us to accomplish. And that's a wonderful thought because we are imperfect vessels. We're people who fail to achieve all that we desire, and particularly in our spiritual lives. We think, oh, if I could only not stumble or I'm, I'm, I just feel like this temptation is weighing me down. And then we remember what kind of a savior we have. We have a comprehensive savior, a consistent savior, a savior who has it covered. He is sufficient to shelter each of us in any circumstance or concern. But how does this skin also sort of speak to the way we live our spiritual lives? Well, for our part, as we tabernacle with God, we want to inspect our lives for any areas where there might be a gap right? They were in the wilderness there, um, but that didn't mean it wouldn't have rain or that didn't mean that they wouldn't have sort of, you know, sandstorms. And we were driving home from Visalia as the rain started, but the precursor to the rain was this incredible like dust storm on the 198 all being kicked up. And we kept thinking, man, I hope it starts raining to knock some of that down. Well, in the wilderness, of course, you'd get those sorts of winds and breezes and it would knock up all this dust and you can't exactly have the Holy of Holies getting all dusty inside, now can you? (laughs) Or the lampstand inside, which was the only light for the inside of the tabernacle other than the Shekinah glory. You can't have that being extinguished because the roof is leaking. You needed to, if you were the Levites and the priests, you would have to make sure that when you set up their tabernacle, which they would have to do lots of times as they moved around, make sure that the joints are overlapped properly and clasped together properly and that we don't have cracks in some of the skins or we don't have worn away areas. And so um, that's how the skin can sort of speak to us for our personal lives. Is there any part of our lives, any part of our Christianity where there may be some gap, some corner, some layer where we haven't applied the covering of Christ or where that's sort of wearing thin? Some area where there might be a spiritual leak, as it were. Being out in the wilderness for decades under the scorching sun, being moved around, eventually one of these curtains may need a repair. And while that is never true of Christ, it is true of us. We're people that need ongoing maintenance and repair in our spiritual lives. And so as we search through our hearts, if we find some gap or some exposure to temptation or some discouragement or fear, we can have that mended by the Lord. He has a maintenance plan for us and he's willing to come and patch over that and mend that on our behalf. And second here, we notice that the tabernacle was all about interior design. Uh, It was not uh, about the what do they say? Not the frontage, but uh, elevation. There wasn't much as by way of curb appeal or elevation on this 
tent. It was about interior design. If you go through these chapters in Exodus, you see beautiful golden pieces of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat being put inside the tabernacle. In our verses, we notice the incredible embroidery, the intricate sewing work that would adorn the walls of this tent inside. But from the outside, you just see this kind of rectangle of animal skins, just this sort of rectangular little tent and you wouldn't know if that was just the barracks for the army or, or, or what, or if it's just somebody's tent. It was just kind of a little rectangular tent out there. Well, how does this speak to us of Jesus? Well, Isaiah described the Messiah this way. He said in Isaiah 53 two, he has no form or comeliness and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. It's one of the most interesting passages or prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament, that the Messiah sent from God would be nondescript, would really be nothing to look at from, from the human perspective. Jesus doesn't look like a Disney prince. You see on the internet all the time, I'm sure, which Disney prince are you? Click, 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 you know. By the way, they're stealing your IP address if you click on that. <laughs> And you're going to be in some trouble. But Jesus didn't look like that. When he took on flesh, he may have been plain and nondescript, but as a person got closer to him and, and saw his life, and as we get closer to him through the scriptures and, and through communion with him, we see his life, we see his heart revealed, and we see what he has done for us. Well, nothing could be more lovely or desirable. He is the desire of nations, the Bible says. And this is the way that the Lord loves to work. God's an interior designer. If you saw the tabernacle from the outside, it really wouldn't be anything special at all. From the outside, it was just a tent. But if you were to go inside, well, the inside was like nothing else in the entire world. It was really quite exquisite. You would see incredible detail and craftsmanship with all these designs. There's gold and there's silver. There's all this going on. That doesn't even count the Shekinah glory behind the veil. Now, you wouldn't be allowed to see that, but it was there all the same. And so it's a reminder that man likes to focus on the outside. We know this, and the Bible is consistent to tell us and remind us that, hey, man looks on the outside, but God looks at the heart. God cares about what's within a man. Whether it was God talking to Samuel about David, remember Samuel goes to anoint the next king, and he's, oh, this must be the guy. He's big and strapping. He's handsome. He, he's the most kingly, and the Lord had to say, Samuel, you're looking on the outward man. I look on the inward. Or whether you look at the Pharisees from outside, they had their phylacteries, they had their robes, they had their tassels, they had all this knowledge. They were so stately, they were wealthy, they were the pinnacles of spiritual and economic success. And what did Jesus say? He's like, hey man, you're whitewashed tombs, you look so good on the outside, and inside you're dead and you're rotten. And so God cares about the inside, whereas man likes to focus on the outside. And not just when it comes to the physical world, but even sometimes in our religious lives as well, we can kind of drift into this outward focus or this sort of outward obsession. On the physical level, it is easy to become overly focused on the outer tent. Our culture is pounding us and bombarding us nonstop with the idea that your outside needs to be something, a certain something. Otherwise, you're unacceptable to the world, right? I mean, we've all felt this. That's the culture we live in. We're just bombarded day after day after day with all of these messages and all of these challenges that you need to look X, and the X is always better 
no matter who you are, our culture around us, because it's wicked and depraved and doesn't care about you and me, says you need, whoever you are, no matter what you look like, you need to look better and better and better and better. And so on the physical level, it's easy to become overly focused on our outer tent. And while the Lord is fine with us taking care of our appearance and having a healthy body, he is fine with that, he's much more interested in the inward health of our spiritual lives. But the same goes with our approach to ministry and to the way we apply our spiritual lives as well. As Christians or as a church, rather than obsess over achieving some sort of uh, tangible measure of outward spiritual success, we should remember that the bearing of fruit is God's business, right? I think sometimes, I know at least for myself, I forget that and I think, oh man, if I was a good Christian, I would be bearing more fruit. But in reality, it's God who bears fruit fruit in us as we are connected to him. You cannot generate agape love of yourself. I can't either. We cannot do those things. God can do them in us. And so the bearing of fruit in a Christian or through a church is God's business as we remain rooted in him. And so our pursuit should be to stay connected to the vine so that he will accomplish what he desires in us and through us. And spiritual fruit is the natural byproduct of a healthy Christian and a healthy church. And so rather than trying to decide what we think spiritual success is as a Christian or as a church, we've decided that spiritual success is this, a certain number of people, a certain number of baptisms, a certain number of whatever. The Lord is saying, actually, I'm in charge of what the church is supposed to be doing. And I'm in charge of the harvest. And I'm in charge of bringing that fruit out of your life and out of your ministry. And so rather than pursue or copy methods for having a better church or a certain uh, result that we want to be able to count on fingers and toes, We should remember that God works not from the outside into the heart, but from the heart out through the rest of our lives and out through into our communities as well. Next, we wanna take a look at the strength of this tabernacle. Look at verse 15, another uh, long portion. So follow along if you've got the word with you. And for the tabernacle, you shall make boards of acacia wood standing upright. 10 cubits shall be the length of a board and a cubit and a half shall be the width of each board. Two tenons shall be in each board for binding one to another. Thus you shall make for all the boards of the tabernacle and you shall make the boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards for the south side. You shall make 40 sockets of silver under the 20 boards, two sockets under each of the boards for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, there shall be 20 boards. There are 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. For the far side of the tabernacle, westward, you shall make six boards, and you shall also make two boards uh, for the two back corners of the tabernacle. They shall be coupled together at the bottom. They shall be coupled together at the top by one ring, as it shall be for both of them. They shall be for the two corners. So there shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two sockets under each of the boards, and you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, five boards, uh, bars for the boards of the side of the tabernacle, and for the far side westward. The middle bar shall pass through the midst of the boards from end to end. You shall overlay the boards with gold and make their rings of gold as holders for the bars and overlay the bars with gold. And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which you were shown on the mountain. 
three aspects of the strength of this tabernacle we wanna think about tonight. First of all, in verse 15, we see the obvious yet essential command that the boards stand upright. Really? Yes, he said, first of all, these boards need to stand upright. David wrote this in Psalm 25. He said, good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. Christ was and is upright in every way. He is pure and righteous and holy. And he commands us to follow in that holiness. And that's an obvious thing, but it's something we want to make sure we never overlook. It's not just about obedience, it's also for our benefit that we walk upright. We're told in Proverbs that when we walk uprightly, which means according to God's commands and walk with integrity and walk in the righteousness that Christ has given us, then the Lord will give us strength and he'll give us reward. He'll bring us into deliverance and he'll be a shield to us. Those are all promises that the Proverbs make to those who walk uprightly. And so we are to set up our lives uprightly according to the word of God and rather than our own whims. You know, our feelings are very deceptive. The Bible declares the heart, the human heart, is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And so rather than careen through life dictated by feelings, not that feelings are always bad, but feelings cannot be the decider in our lives and particularly not in our spiritual lives because we don't even know what's going on in our heart of hearts half the time according to the Bible, but that the word of God dictates what we do and why we do it. Because we're told that the word of God divides between the soul and the spirit. The word of God is able to get down to the heart of the matter and down to where we need to be and where we need to go. And even if our feelings are are one way, the word of God can explain the way that we should go. Now second here, we see the strength of the tabernacle because of the precious materials that were used. There's gold, there's silver, we've seen bronze already, there's weaved fabric, there's strong lumber. Each board was put into a base of silver that scholars say weighed more than 260 pounds each. Uh, That's a lot of silver. Now, silver in the scriptures generally speaks to us devotionally of redemption and the work of redemption that Christ has done for us. And here we see a great picture of the strength of Christ's redeeming work. Each board placed into a silver base that was as heavy as a person. And Christ's redemptive work was strong and able to carry the weight of all the sin, of all the world, of all mankind throughout human history. He was able to carry that to the cross and deal with it once and for all. Christ shouldered that load. The Bible says that you were crucified with Christ. Meaning that as Christ hung on the cross, so did all of my sin, so did all of your sin. All of those sins compounded, and that was the strength of Christ's redemption. So strong, able to hold all of that up and deal with it. The boards, we're told, are to be made of acacia wood. Acacia wood is strong, it's dense, like redwood, a great wood for lumber. The trees would be growing all around them, right there in the wilderness where they found themselves. So it's not like Uh, God said, hey, you need to make this tabernacle, and by the way, you need to use Nordic cherry in order to build this tabernacle, so get up to wherever that is. No, the Lord said, I want you to use acacia wood. Now, acacia wood was a wonderful wood and has great symbolism for us, but it was all around them right where they found themselves, even there in the wilderness, and showing that Christ is immediately available and that if we are willing to construct our lives 
unto him, we don't have to search to the ends of the earth for what we need. Christ is available right now. What did he say? He said, if you seek, you shall find. And unlike so many of the other false religions and false deities of human history, we don't have to go climb up a mountain in our hands and knees or, or slither down a valley in order to find our God and, and go up into some distant Himalaya and go into a temple and answer three proper questions before God will even answer us. No, he says, hey, I'm right here. I'm, I'm in your midst right now. In fact, I've been chasing you down. I've been knocking on the door of your heart, hoping that you would open the door so that I can come in and sup with you. And so we don't have to search to the ends of the earth for what we need. The Lord is not far from us, but he is near and at the door. Acacia wood is resistant to decay. It's resistant to the attack of insects. And all of this speaks of the strength that we can find in Christ. These precious elements also remind us to construct our lives with those things which last, not the proverbial wood, hay, and stubble that Paul spoke about, which will be burned up in the last day, but using those precious things that will last. And third, we notice in verse 30 how they were to raise up the tabernacle, it says. It may have been a movable tent, but when it was lifted up, it was unmoving. This was a sturdy structure. It wasn't like the kind of little vinyl tent, the two-man tent you try to set up out in the woods, right? That's kind of blowing all around and you can't get the one rod in quite right, so it's kind of leaning to one side. That's what happens when I try to put a tent together. That's not the kind of tent this was. This was an unmovable structure once it was set up. And the name of Jesus is elevated above every other name. His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. He is unchanging, he is unmoving, and therefore his name should be the highest and the most elevated in our hearts and in our churches as well. Now, we are also able to be raised up in the sense that our Christianity is to be sturdy and strong. If the tabernacle speaks to us of the kind of faith that the Lord wants to have or the kind of home he wants to build for the Holy Spirit in our lives, well, it's a place that is sturdy and strong. And here's what I mean by that. When we read how God describes what a Christian is in the Bible, there is a strength and a sturdiness to it. He says, you're like the man who built his house on solid rock. And it's a sturdiness to it. And it's not just the promises of, that the Lord makes to us, but in the analogies he uses as well, we see these images. He refers to us as trees that are firm and planted, a house built on, on rock securely. He calls us living stones that join together in the church. There's always power and stability and fortitude in how God talks about Christians. And quoting Psalm chapter 16, Peter said this in the book of Acts, the Lord is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. That's how he described his Christianity. That's the way we see the Christian life portrayed in the scriptures. It's not perfect, it's not easy, it's not without trouble, but it's meant to be a strong and resolute and empowered thing, lifted up, set securely to withstand the storms in life, withstand the elements of the wilderness. But when we look at the Christian culture today, the Christian culture around us, it doesn't seem like 
That's what we see. It doesn't seem like these two things are matching up. As a group, not us locally here, but just as a group, the Christian culture in the West or in America, we seem to be more defined by doubt and inadequacy and defeat. And maybe that's unfair, but I guess when I turn on Christian radio, more often than not, that's the message I'm getting, that we're defined by doubt, we're defined by failure, we're just hoping we can make it through till tomorrow, I'm about to you know, wisp away into the air. And, and though we want to make allowances for our humanity, and of course, each of us, all of us definitely feel inadequate or defeated from time to time, that's natural, that's to be expected, but that's not how we're to be defined according to the word of God. That's not to be the normal Christian experience. That's not what God wants for us. Imagine, if you will, that the tabernacle was in the state of disrepair that a lot of Christian songs describe the Christian life as being like on the radio, just everything's falling apart, everything's broken, we're about to, you know, just we're about to not make it. Would you go into a tent like that? Ooh, is there somewhere else I could bring my offering? Because it's like wavering and, you know, there's boards falling down and there's just people kind of stuck in there like, which of the, it was the wicked witch of the east, right? That was smashed under the house, Dorothy's house. And we get the idea that every Christian out there is about to collapse under the weight of life and we're not really standing upright, we're just kind of a broken heap of material. Well, I don't wanna go into a building like that. And you know what? God doesn't want us to go through life like that. He says, yeah, I've brought strength, strength to establish you and to raise you up. He said, I'm the lifter of your head. I wanna help you. Of course the weight of life is crushing. I wanna remove that. He said, come to me if you're burdened and heavy laden. I will give you rest. I'm gonna take that yoke off of you and give you mine, which is easy and which is something that you can bear because I bear it with you. And so God's desire in the Bible is that we be firmly established in his power and fullness. And of course, we have moments of weakness. Of course, we have moments of discouragement, but those things should not define our Christian experience. They should be things that when we experience them, we go to the Lord and say, Lord, take this and remove it and help me to walk in strength. And so the message for us is this. If we need some repairs, let's get repaired. The Lord wants to stabilize us and strengthen us and keep us from being shaken. Ephesians 6, 10 says this, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And so if we find ourselves in perpetual cycles of doubt or sin or spiritual weakness, well then let's do what the godly men in the Bible did when they found themselves in those states and ask this. What did David say? He would say all the time, why are you cast down, O my soul? And he was investigating himself and he, and he was realizing this is not what the Lord intends for me. Let's figure out what's going on and let's get to the bottom of it, and then strengthen ourselves in the Lord. The Bible says that God comforts the downcast. He wants to lift us up and strengthen us and develop us as people who not only believe in his power, but then represent that power in reality to the world. And so the tabernacle was an amazing structure. We've obviously only scratched the surface here. It was a special place, not just because of all the stuff inside, but mostly, most of all because in it, God placed his glory. And it was amazing because of how it previewed the person and work of Christ to the world. And with all of that, we realize that many of these principles also apply to us as we walk with the Lord and as he does that work of raising up and establishing and, and conforming in our lives. And so as we think through the skins and the strength, we should remember that the tabernacle was a mobile building. The children of Israel would have to pack it up, carry it out as they followed the Lord, and then set it up again in each new place. Sometimes the terrain might change, the pressures would change, the horizon would change. 
But no matter where the people found themselves, the tabernacle was still sturdy, still consistent, still beautiful, still housing the presence and the glory of God. And I think that's a great reminder as we move through life. Of course, life doesn't stay in one place. Of course, life keeps moving. Um, But as we move through life, the weather is always changing, the terrain keeps changing, but even in the bleakest of wildernesses, God's people can be confident that the Lord is with them. His desire has always been to dwell in our midst and to conform us according to his will and his desires. And so tonight, Christ dwells with us and he works to transform us from the inside out. And he doesn't just slap on a coat of paint, right? Oh, that's looking pretty rough. I'll just put some new paint on there. That's not what the Lord does it all. He does a powerful redemptive work from the inside out, from the bottom up to make us into his likeness. The Bible says he brings beauty from ashes to make us like him. People of inner strength, people of inner beauty, people defined by mercy, people close to God, focused on worship, people who go to the Lord for guidance and direction and provision, people who can withstand storms and bring hope, people who are set apart to do eternal work and are lifted up by God to show the world what it means to be a Christian and what Christ can do for them. 